I'm Amanda Lipman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I am still flying solo this week because Faz is spending time with his very cute new baby, who hopefully will make an appearance on later episodes, maybe in the form of crying or maybe a little video presentation. Our guest this week, or my guest this week, was Brian Fallon. Brian is the co-founder and executive director of Demand Justice, a progressive organization that's focused on reforming the courts. The work they do is incredibly important because for too long, Democrats have left the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary as sort of a a side issue, as something that should stay apolitical or nonpartisan. Meanwhile, the Republicans have invested deeply over the course of decades in trying to politicize and take ownership of these courts, understanding that to control the institutions and structures that set the rules is to control the entire ballgame. Brian and I met on the Clinton campaign back in 2016, where he was the national press secretary. So you might have seen him on TV a lot talking about Hillary Clinton's emails. Before that, he worked in a whole bunch of different communication roles, including for Senators Bob Menendez, Chuck Schumer, and then for the Justice Department under Attorney General Eric Holder. It's been really fascinating to watch him go from working within institutions like the Senate and the Justice Department to running an organization like Demand Justice that is unapologetically progressive and pushing aggressively for deep structural change. But before we get to our conversation, I do want to talk about something that's been happening this week. And it's actually something not really politics related. If you are like me, you have been watching the Olympics obsessively. I fucking love the Olympics. And I wanted to bring it up, even though we usually talk about political stuff, because it's actually really nice to just root for America, to root for our country in a way that feels distinct from the political process. I also want to call out, of course, that Trump in a speech suggested booing the United States Olympics team, and in particular the women's national soccer team, called them too woke, said that their wokeism, which is just fighting for equal pay, which they aggressively deserve. Remember, the men's national team didn't even qualify for the Olympics. Trump called the women's fight for equal pay why they lost to Sweden in one of the earlier rounds. Now, one, obviously that's ridiculous. And two, can you imagine if a Democrat had called for booing the American Olympic team? It would be a full-page shit show from the Republican Party if the roles were reversed. I do think it's worth noting the different standards that our party leaders are held to and that if you are watching the Olympics and want to talk to me about it on Twitter, I would love to hear what you're thinking. For now, let's leave it there and play our conversation with Brian Fallon from Demand Justice. Brian Fallon, welcome to Battleground. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Give me the TLDR. What does Demand Justice do for those who aren't familiar with it? So we are a group that is trying to get progressive activists to understand that the courts are an important arena for us to try to influence politically. And it is not an issue that is on the tip of the tongue of most progressive activists or even most progressive voters. And as a result, we've been getting our butts kicked for the last 30 years on this issue. And we are trying to shake up how Democrats approach the courts. So we definitely, during the years that Trump was in office, organized a lot of volunteers and spent a lot of money on ads and trying to stop some of Donald Trump's worst nominees. But as much as we focus on trying to contest what Republicans are doing in terms of the people that they put on the courts, we're also trying to create a bit of a shakeup in the Democratic Party in terms of how we approach judges in the courts. And by that, I mean, I think that there's a reason why Democrats have been getting their butts kicked for 30 years on the courts. And it's because we've been mostly taking our cues from progressive legal elites that have been telling progressive activists that the courts are an issue that 
has to remain apolitical and should not be the subject of democratic activism. I think that's all wrong. I think conservatives have been organizing around the courts for a long time. They've been committing activist energy to this issue. They've been making it an issue that they wage campaigns around and that their candidates speak to during the course of their candidacies. I think our side needs to develop those muscles too. And so we're trying to challenge old school institutionalist, normsy democratic thinking as much as we're trying to contest what Republicans and Mitch McConnell are doing. And we're having some success in the Biden administration, thankfully, has in the person of Ron Klain, who's their chief of staff, you know, sees things in a very different way than previous Democratic administrations. And so we're seeing new types of people being nominated by President Biden to the courts. And so that's encouraging. But in a different respect, you know, we believe that there's some big picture structural changes needed to undo the damage that Republicans have done to the courts. We're still encountering a lot of institutionalist-minded thinking, even from the Biden administration. So we're trying to work from the ground up of building awareness among Democratic activists and recruiting volunteers and convincing Democratic lawmakers that this is an issue that they need to be prepared to think boldly about. You talk about going up against institutions and establishment Democrats. Up until three to four years ago, you would have probably characterized yourself as one of those. You worked for Schumer, you worked for the DOJ. Was there a moment that was radicalizing for you? Well, I think in the aftermath of 2016, there were a lot of people in our party that started to see the world differently and started to think that the old way of approaching politics was just not going to meet the moment. And I think that the party is slowly but surely adjusting itself to that new reality. And you see it playing out across Mm -hmm. issues beyond just the one that I'm directly involved in, which is judges in the courts. But I think if you asked myself or a lot of Democrats five or seven years ago, about the idea that we should have more than 50 stars in the flag and D.C. should be a state and we should get rid of the filibuster Mm -hmm. in the Senate and we should seriously reconsider the Electoral College, that these were all ideas that people might have thought were a little pie in the sky. And slowly but surely, but especially in the last couple of years, we've come to see these as not just pie in the sky ideas. These are absolutely critical reforms that are needed to restore democracy in this country. And so I think that the types of things that we're calling for doing with respect to judges and the courts, I think fits right alongside those other ideas that might have four or five years ago seemed like something that was not politically viable, but that Democrats have come to realize is something that we need to convince our party to embrace and that we will never fulfill our hopes for the country as a true multiracial democracy unless we get some of these ideas mainstreamed and enacted. It feels to me like the problem with Democrats and the courts is similar to the problem with Democrats and basically anything that is long-term structural power, you know, state legislatures, county elections, long-term organizing, and that our funding infrastructure, our orientation as a party is around the flashy top of the ticket every four years and does not think long-term. It also strikes me that Republicans view this exactly the opposite Can you describe a little bit the Republican infrastructure around courts? Let me take you back to the early 1970s. Time machine. (laughs) (laughs) Bear with me for a second. In the early 1970s, there is a corporate lawyer by the name of Lewis Powell, who is very close with some of the higher ups at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the main lobbying arm for big business Mm -hmm. in the United States of America, then as, as today. And this was coming on the heels of a couple decades worth of jurisprudence from the Supreme Court that was pretty good for progressives. You know, we had Mm -hmm. a set of rulings that desegregated America's schools, that uplifted defendants' rights in the criminal justice system, Roe v. Wade, 
And this did not sit well with a lot of conservative legal thinkers, and Lewis Powell was among those people. And in this strategy memo, which anybody could read online, that he wrote at the time for senior folks at the Chamber of Commerce, he proposed a long-term investment made by big business to make the country safer for corporate interests by specifically trying to win a battle to control the U.S. judicial system. And so he proposed that this battle to win control of the court system be waged on a bunch of fronts. He proposed that they make long-term investments in endowing professorships at law schools to help bring along the next generation of conservative law students and help mainstream certain views of the U.S. Constitution that were going to be friendly to corporate interests. And he proposed that the Chamber of Commerce actively seek to litigate matters and file amicus briefs routinely on any issue that might come before the court where the Chamber of Commerce and business interests might be implicated. And this was sort of a forerunner to the Federalist Society, which then started to take shape a few years later in the early 1980s. Lewis Powell himself went on to become uh, a Supreme Court justice named to the court by Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon. And it was his leaving the court that created the opening where Robert Bork was first nominated in 1987. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. that seat was filled with Anthony Kennedy. But the Chamber of Commerce adopted most of his recommendations, and so did the larger conservative movement. And so to this day, you have professorships at law schools across the country that are funded by the Kochs, and many of them are named for Antonin Scalia, (laughs) uh, these endowed Mm -hmm. professorships. And then you have the Federal Society, which was a campus-based organization that was launched by, among other people, Antonin Scalia. And the goal there was to set it up as a nonpartisan 501c3 organization whose goal would be to cultivate debate and academic discussions on law campuses. In reality, they were trying to build power for conservative law students, conservative legal academics, and ultimately conservative judicial candidates. And that's what they did. And four decades later, they've basically achieved the vision that Lewis Powell set out and that the founders of the Federalist Society set out to achieve. You know, you don't have justices or judges that are named to the bench by Republican presidents who go on to surprise those presidents anymore. David Mm -hmm. Souter was a nominee to the Supreme Court by George Bush I, and he was one of the most liberal justices on the court during his time as a justice. John Paul Stevens was a nominee of President Ford, and he went on to be one of the liberal lions on the court until age 90. And this frustrated conservatives. They felt like they were squandering these appointments to the court, that they would have people that got picked by Republican presidents and then went on to surprise them and veer sharply to the left when they got onto the bench. So they created this system through the Federalist Society where there could be no more surprises, where by the time somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, who was just named last year, of course, to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, by the time she is on the shortlist for President Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. she's been known to the folks that run the Federalist Society for 20, 25 years. They know that she's going to be a loyalist when it comes to abortion cases. And so they're quite confident in suggesting to Donald Trump that he should pick her. But all of this infrastructure that was created is the result of decades of planning and investment by well-funded, deep-pocketed interests that aligned around basically two issues, corporate interests and religious issues, you know, the evangelical movement. And those two sets of donors that really propelled this movement such that an organization like the Federalist Society is funded probably 10 or 20 to 1 compared to its left-wing analog, the American Constitution Society. And, you know, I know that you encounter these funding Mm -hmm. disparities all the time when you're trying to convince 
Democratic donors to consider giving to down ballot races and investing in long term infrastructure versus giving to the trendy Senate candidate of any given election cycle. It's an issue that a group like mine faces too. Because you would think during Kavanaugh yeah. and during the Ruth Bader Ginsburg like, confirmation fight, they would come to me and say, so obviously important. Well, right? a lot of reporters and even staffers on Capitol Hill would come to me during the Kavanaugh fight and during the um, Ginsburg's, the subsequent battle over her seat. And they would say, hey, you know, even if this doesn't go your way, you're probably raising all kinds of money off of this, right? And I was like, no, you know why? Because Chuck Schumer doesn't tell big Democratic donors in New York and California to give to groups like mine that are trying to plan for the long term. They say like, hey, if you're upset about this, give to our Senate candidates so we can flip the Senate. Nope. And that's almost as far as any of these donors think in terms of the next federal election cycle. And it's just frustrating. We're going to take a quick ad break, but then we'll be back to talk about what business interests have to do with access to abortion. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to Brian Fallon of Demand Justice. I do think it's worth noting the two issues that you pointed out of corporate interest and evangelical, which tends to embody itself most often in abortion and women's right to choose. Do you think there's something specific about that that draws out both, I think, conservative donors, but also conservative voters that we don't have on our side in terms of the way our voters think about the courts? Yeah, it's sort of an unholy marriage that exists on the right. So it's obviously business interests and corporate America's goals that are fueling a large part of the cash infusion and the engagement from elites on the Republican side. Mm -hmm. But that's not a huge, you know, oh, we need to overturn Chevron deference so that the EPA can't regulate yeah, greenhouse gas yeah. emissions. That's <laughs> yeah. not really a thing that galvanizes rank and file voters on the Republican side. So they tend to whip their voters up into a frenzy by talking about abortion and reaching evangelical audiences that way. And the other issue that we haven't talked about is guns and the fear mm -hmm. that the next Democratic president is going to take your guns away and a, uh, a Supreme Court that consisted of a majority of Democratic appointees would overturn Heller and the individual right to bear arms. And so guns and abortion are the two rallying cries that truly mobilize the conservative grassroots. But what is funding that network and that infrastructure? What's funding Americans for Prosperity and all the in-state organizing that the Koch brothers do? It's corporate America business-backed dollars fused with organic enthusiasm amongst conservative rank-and-file voters around the issue of guns and abortion. Let's talk about abortion, because it does seem like Roe v. Wade is on the chopping block. And part of that has been the intended goal of the Republican broader ecosystems investment in state legislatures to pass the overreaching bills that then get in front of the Supreme Court. Is there anything we can do to save abortion access? Are we super screwed? Well, I think that there is something that we can do. And to me, the question is just whether we will truly summon the will to do what it's going to take. So to mm -hmm. set the stage here, the Supreme Court has announced that they're going to hear this Mississippi statute next term. The state authorities in Mississippi are defending this ban after six weeks, are officially now asking the Supreme Court conservative justices to use their law as an excuse to overturn Roe v. Wade. Of course, the court could decide in favor of upholding the Mississippi law without officially overturning Roe v. Wade. But Mississippi's now on record saying, no, we want you to go for broke. We want you to do the whole thing. Say that 
Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 was wrong, say that Roe v. Wade was wrong. And now the question becomes, what will the conservatives on the court do? And, you know, the most straightforward scenario that could play out is that they give Mississippi what it's asking for. And I do think that there's at least a few votes on the Supreme Court for sure that would go that far. I think Clarence Thomas is probably there. I think Alito is probably there. But there's a chance that John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh may say, well, let's do this in stages. Let's uphold Mississippi and let's hollow out Mm -hmm. the real effective Roe, but let's not give the headline of officially overturning Roe just yet. So there may be some countervailing effort within the court's conservatives to say, let's uphold the Mississippi statute. Let's say that a ban of this type does not amount to an undue burden, but let's not go all the way of saying Roe v. Wade is officially overturned. A hollowed out Roe is in many ways for many of the women in these states, low-income women, women of color that will be impacted by statutes like the Mississippi one. It's really an academic difference to try to slice the bologna that thin and declare it as some kind of victory if they stop short of officially overturning Roe v. Wade, but still allows statutes like this to remain on the books. And so to go back to your original question, what can we do? You know, I think that you're already hearing calls from some corners that the solution here is to codify Roe v. Wade and give it the force of federal law and try to head the Supreme Court off at the pass that way. And of course, I would totally support that effort. It's going to take, I think, getting rid of the filibuster to do it. And we all know where that stands right now. But make no mistake, if we were to pass a law like that, it would end up right in front of these same justices. And so to me, it's a short-term solution at best. Mm -hmm. And this is true across issues. I say the same thing in the context of the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Restoration Act. Should we pass it? Absolutely. Should we content ourselves that just passing that would be sufficient? Absolutely not, because the Supreme Court will gut the next Voting Rights Act just like they gutted the original one in 1965. So on any of these issues, whether it's gun safety or abortion rights or voting rights, you need to have a legislative solution that directly addresses the issue at hand, but you need a sidecar strategy for dealing with the court. (laughs) And so to me, having a strategy for reforming the court is as necessary as getting rid of the filibuster to address any of these issues. Just like you need to be able to get through the Senate and you're going to need to get rid of the filibuster to pass something like codifying Roe or to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, you're also going to need a Supreme Court reform strategy so that after going through all that trouble, winning the trifecta, winning those Georgia seats, somehow getting cinema and mansion to go along with getting rid of the filibuster to pass these, we're going to come back in three years and and have the Supreme Court undo them all. That's the fate that we're in store for unless we have a court strategy alongside these other ideas. So give me your wish list. What's the court reform dream? Well, you know, so Joe Biden now has a court reform commission going on, which is a very frustrating endeavor because these mostly selected academic scholars to serve on it. And they don't have any mandate to make any formal recommendations to Biden about particular solutions. So in terms of actually producing something that's going to be actionable, there's no hope of that. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. But Jamal Bowie has a very good column out that says, you know, despite the fact that it's being set up for failure, it's not totally worthless because these hearings that it is holding is bringing to the surface a lot of great ideas and challenging a lot of establishment-minded thinking that's still carries the day in democratic circles about how we should approach the court. And in our minds, there's a bunch of proposals. We sort of have an all of the above strategy for ideas to reform the court. And among the ideas that we support are term limits for justices, 
to regularize the appointment schedule so that we're not in a situation where vacancies just arise by happenstance due to either a justice strategically timing their retirement or the arbitrariness of when they follow and, and pass, but rather standardize a schedule where for instance, you could say that future justices are appointed to 18-year terms on the Supreme Court and a vacancy will arise every two years. That guarantees that every president in a given four-year term is going to get the chance to nominate two people. And even if a vacancy arises through an untimely death, if the president has already picked two people in their four-year window, they don't get to pick a third. It carries over into the next window and it sort hmm. of reduces the ability for people like Mitch McConnell to game the system by trying to hold seats open or manipulate the timing of when seats come open. So that's yeah. one reform that has actually a great deal of support from bipartisan sources. Even John Roberts, before he was on the court, supported term limits for Supreme Court justices. So that's something that I hope will not prove too controversial over time. I don't think it's something that's going to happen tomorrow, but I think that's like a near-term possibility for where consensus could and be had. That's Just a question on that. That has to come from Congress, or is this a change that Joe Biden can just like wave a magic wand and institute? Yeah, it would require statutory change passed by Congress. But the good news is that it could be done through a statutory change. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. A lot of people think that Mm-hmm. It would require yeah, a constitutional. Yeah, a lot of people think it would require a constitutional amendment, and if if this proposal gains steam, a lot of people will come out of the woodwork and try to say that it needs a constitutional amendment. There's a very strong case that's been embraced by a lot of academics on both sides of the aisle that you could do it through simple statute. And the reason is because the Constitution does guarantee life tenure for federal judges, but it doesn't guarantee that they get to serve for life on any particular court. So you could say that, all right, we're going to name Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court, but after 18 years, she rolls off of the Supreme Court and she becomes a circuit court judge and she'll still get her full pension. She'll still Mm -hmm. get her full benefits. She'll still hear her cases. She just won't sit on the highest court in the land anymore. And that's the way that the proposal works. And so you could do a proposal like that through simple act of legislation. So that's number one. Number two is adding seats to the court. Specifically, there's been a bill introduced in Congress in the Senate by Ed Markey and in the House by Jerry Nadler and Hank Johnson, as well as Mondaire Jones, who's a tremendous freshman that just joined Congress, Yeah, just got elected last year from Nita Lowy's old seat in New York. He's a former Department of Justice lawyer, and he's only like 33, I think, but he's brilliant. And he is one of the few people Mm -hmm. that spoke out and called for Stephen Breyer to retire. He's one of these people that gives me hope that the rising generation of Democrats are going to get it when it comes to the courts. And Nadler and Hank Johnson being on this bill is significant because Nadler is the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the House, and Hank Johnson is the chair of the relevant subcommittee. So this is a bill that could get marked up this year. And it would add four seats to the Supreme Court. And this was a proposal that was started to be talked about after Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, but then really took hold after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and Republicans pulled out the stops to install Amy Coney Barrett while people were already voting in the election. Uh And so it's now up to 28 sponsors in the House, uh, growing every week. And the proposal has been embraced by academics, by leading commentators, During last fall, when the Republicans were pushing forward with Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, even people like Joe Scarborough went on TV and said Democrats would be totally justified with adding seats to the court. There's a historical basis for doing this. Congress has changed the court size seven times. 
It hasn't happened mm-hmm. in a while, but it was routine all during the early part of the nation's history. Changed three times in the 1860s, which is a period of tumult dealing yeah. with the aftermath of the Civil War and what notions of who should vote and who should participate in our democracy that are not unlike the questions that we're encountering today. And it could be done by simple act of legislation. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. Constitution left it up to Congress to decide how many sit on there. And the last thing I'll say on this is for the first 100 plus years in the nation's history, it wasn't an arbitrary number of how many justices served in the Supreme Court. It was based on how many different circuit courts we had in the United States of America. And since the court size was set at nine, we've since grown by four in terms of the number of circuit courts in America, but we've never had the number of justices on the Supreme Court catch up to that. So every previous time we changed the size, it was to keep pace with the number of circuits across the country at the federal appellate level. And so 13, in addition to meaning that the Democrats could potentially have the chance to appoint four more seats and then have a 7-6 majority on the court, it also has a historical basis in terms of matching up with the number of circuits. Do you think Joe Biden will institute any of these changes, assuming that they pass? Do you think he'll push for them? Will he put any leverage behind them? Will his commission come up with any of them? I don't think that the commission will formally put its thumb on the scale on behalf of any of these proposals. They were very clear at the outset of the formation of the commission that they basically had no power to make formal recommendations to Biden. So unfortunately, if we're being honest with each other, I think Mm -hmm. that him announcing the commission was a bit of a way for him to do something on this issue while largely punting on the substance. Yeah. Do I think it's better to, that we had this commission rather than nothing? Yes. But do I think it's much better than nothing? No. So I don't think that our theory of change of how to try to get Democrats to take the need for this seriously runs through this commission. I think that it runs mm-hmm. through organizing around proposals like the Judiciary Act that Ed Markey and Mondaire Jones and Hank Johnson have introduced and building support for that one lawmaker at a time. That's what we're doing. So we have first two years we existed. We did not have any type of organizing program. And the last year we've invested about a third of our budget in organizing. And we're spending all of our time recruiting volunteers to put pressure on their respective members of Congress to support Supreme Court reform. Because it's going to take a while, but it's the long-term sort of investment in this issue that we need to make. You mentioned two Supreme Court justices by name, and I want to take them one at a time. Justice Breyer is very old. How do we get this man to retire and give Joe Biden a vacancy? Is that a thing that we can do? If I knew the answer to that question, I would have tried to do it in the last three months. Instead, I've resorted to all other manner of tactics that did not succeed. It's an uncomfortable topic of conversation, I think, a little bit. Because it's how do you get someone who has a right, at least for now, to this job for life to opt out of, of what is a pretty sweet gig? Yeah, so at age 82, he is the court's oldest justice. And you would have thought that after seeing what befell Justice Ginsburg, who stayed on the court, and despite multiple bouts with cancer, because she really lived for the job, and seeing how that ended, you would have thought that there'd be a sense of caution on the part of Justice Breyer. But we've not seen any evidence of that. He just gave an interview to CNN a uh, CNN reporter met up with him in Plainfield, New Hampshire, where he likes to summer. Same. He's a New Englander from Massachusetts <laughs> who was caught in his uh, plaid, button-down, short sleeve shirt and cocky shorts and mm-hmm. mandals Ugh. and explained that, you know, he really loves the job. And in particular, he likes finally getting to serve as the court's senior most liberal, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg filled that role up until her death last year. And there's some perks associated with that. Like, for instance, you get to speak first to represent your side in the private closed-door conferences that the justices have when they're assigning opinion. And you get to assign the opinions when you're in the minority. 
And so he literally invoked that to indicate to the reporter how much he was liking the job right now and how disinclined he was to retire. And to me, it just throws a spotlight on how broken the system is that the future trajectory of the court and the implications that has for millions of people that will have to live with the court's rulings in the coming years is all hanging on the ego of an 82-year-old justice who you know, is enjoying being the senior most liberal. And that's why I think we need reforms, not just adding seats, but these justices are just too powerful. Whether you're a progressive justice or conservative justice or a moderate justice, the founders didn't anticipate people living this long. They weren't anticipating the justices were going to be on the court for 30, 40 years. One of nine justices that are increasingly making decisions that Congress has just forfeited the opportunity to make because Congress has become so dysfunctional. And so one of the main themes out of this Supreme Court commission that Biden has stood up is that the court has just grown too powerful and there needs to be some checks on its power because as the other branches have ceded their role in the system, the court is stepping in and answering questions of policy. And they're doing so in the persons of octogenarians that are representing thinking from decades ago when they came of age politically. When people were trying to talk us out of publicly pressuring Justice Breyer to retire, yeah. the main argument that was whispered in my ear was like, you shouldn't publicly pressure him, give him the chance to do the right thing and he'll do it at the end of the term. And the basis for thinking this was he was an aide on Capitol Hill to Senator Ted Kennedy in the late 70s before he was named to the federal bench by Jimmy Carter. And so people would say he knows how the Senate works. He knows how important it is that he retire. And I've gone back to a lot of those people and I said, you know, I think he's worse off for having worked in the Senate in the 70s than if he had no knowledge of Congress at all, because he learned all the wrong lessons because he was there so long ago before the place became so mm -hmm. dysfunctional. I think he's sort of thinking of the institution with rose-colored glasses on. He came of age politically at a time when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan did break bread together. That era is long gone, yeah. and Mitch McConnell literally is going around promising that he won't fill a seat for Joe Biden if he's the Senate Majority Leader in 2023. So I think that Breyer generationally just represents an outdated type of thinking where he can't possibly appreciate the stakes of the moment that we're in politically. I mean, you pointed to this with Mondaire Jones, but I think this is true generally in that younger folks, you know, people in their 20s, 30s, maybe even early 40s, do not see a Republican Party that is on the level. So understand the political process in a very different way than 60s, 70s, 80s. And it makes a conversation about the age of our elected officials very complicated. And I know this intimately as my work focuses on young people. It's not just about age. It's about the generational lens through which you view the function of government and progress. We're going to take a short break. More with Brian Fallon when we return. And we're back with Brian Fallon of Demand Justice. Let's talk a little bit about Brett Kavanaugh. A story dropped about how during the great FBI investigation, the FBI just sent the tips that they were getting over to Trump's lawyers. Is that normal? And more broadly, is Brett Kavanaugh a legitimate Supreme Court justice? Do you have a viewpoint on this? <laughs> I feel like you're just tossing it up for me. Softball, <laughs> and here I am with the leg just kick. Just it over. The leg kick, get ready to make the swing. <laughs> so... The revelation that came to light was good to have because it was an official mm -hmm. admission from the FBI that the investigation that they did into the claims against Brett Kavanaugh was a sham investigation. Of course, we all knew that at the time. So yeah. it was not particularly revelatory in terms of new facts, but it was good to have because it was official corroboration of what we all along assumed from the outside looking in. And it was sort of twofold. There was like two revelations or confirmations of things that we long suspected in that letter. One was that there were all manner of people that 
had pertinent information that they never interviewed because they were limited to interviewing only a list of 10 people that the White House specifically yeah. signed off on. And, you know, that was reported on at the time, but now this is coming straight from the horse's mouth from the FBI in an official communication to the Senate. And the second thing was that they had set up this tip line, which at the time people viewed skeptically, like, are you really going to pursue any of these legitimate tips that you might unearth by setting up this tip line? And lo and behold, in the letter this week, they admitted that they did have some relevant tips that emerged from the tip line. And their manner of dealing with them was to give them to the White House Counsel's Office, which, of course, promptly shoved them into a drawer, never to be acted on, because they were interested in confirming Brett Kavanaugh above all else, not actually learning what happened. And so to me, A, it confirms, to answer your question directly, it confirms that Brett Kavanaugh does not belong on the Supreme Court. And so long as he's one of the nine, Mm -hmm. we should not view that body as a legitimate institution in its current makeup. But number two, it sort of begs the question to me, like, all right, Democrats were powerless in 2018 when this was happening. The Republicans were in the majority in the Senate, but we also didn't control the House yet. We hadn't won back the House. And so there was no oversight function that could be performed on the House side either. Now, of course, we have the gavels in both chambers. So having been in receipt of this information now from the FBI, there is nothing to stop either Dick Durbin as the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee or Jerry Nadler, the head of the House Judiciary Committee, or any of the oversight committees from deciding, well, okay, we're going to pursue the unfinished business here from 2018, and we're going to interview those people that the FBI should have interviewed at the time. And we're going to seek the documents that the White House refused to turn over. And we're going to ask you for those tips that you gave to Don McGahn to light on fire. (laughs) And we're going to conduct our own investigation. To what end? Well, there's a very credible basis to believe that Brett Kavanaugh committed perjury on multiple different yeah. issues. And if they could prove perjury, you could do any number of things at that point. You can make a referral to the Justice Department to reopen a criminal investigation, or more likely, more straightforwardly, Congress could itself embark on impeachment proceedings. When you start to talk about some of these things, some people say like, well, do you really want the Senate at a time where it needs to be passing infrastructure and the voting rights bill to be bogged down in an impeachment trial? Do you think you get to 67 votes anyway? And I have a couple reactions to that. One is like, actually, yes, this is important. He's got a lifetime appointment and we now have confirmation that he skated on all these credible allegations. But number two, even if you don't think you could get Republicans to cross the aisle on impeaching him at the end of the day, it is still worth doing because we're going to be living with Brett Kavanaugh's decisions for the next 30 years. We ought to have all the facts about him, and the public ought to know how seriously and legitimately it should view the Supreme Court as an institution. So I think there's value in pursuing this, even if it doesn't succeed in getting, you know, the likes of Mitch McConnell to vote for impeachment at the end of the day. The process matters just as much as the outcome, especially when it comes to holding Trump and what they were doing accountable. Yeah, because what's going to stop the next Republican White House from handling this the same way if there were no repercussions for how they handled it last time? We talked a lot about the Supreme Court. I want to talk about the rest of the judiciary. One of the most alarming stats that I think about, I don't know, once a week, is that Trump appointed one-fourth of the federal judiciary. And those are judges that also have lifetime appointments that are making decisions on legislation and legality in such a way that we will feel the impact of Trump's decision-making long after he is out of the news cycle. What is the remedy for that? So you're absolutely right that this is a problem. You know, we were saying while Trump was still in office that long after we succeed in ousting Trump, we're going to be dealing with Trump's legacy for the next 30 to 40 years in the form of these very young judges that he put on the bench that share his vision of the country. And we're already seeing that in the first six months of Joe Biden's presidency because the way the federal courts work, if you are a conservative activist organization and you don't like something that Joe Biden's doing, you can 
go jurisdiction shopping and literally file a lawsuit mm-hmm. in a place that has a majority of Republican appointed judges and get a lower court judge to rule against a national policy that Biden may be seeking to implement by executive order. So you're seeing rulings at the lower courts in the last few months trying to stop the eviction moratorium that the Biden administration tried to continue in light of COVID and people being displaced. There was a ruling just a couple of weeks ago in South Carolina about, oh, it's unconstitutional to try to limit handgun purchases to people yeah. that are 21 and above. You should have to sell them to people that are as young as 18. And there's going to continue to be challenges to Biden executive orders that are going to meet with unfriendly Trump-appointed judges in the lower courts. And then when they work their way up the system, ultimately going to have to get by a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court. And so it's super important that the Biden administration takes seriously the need to appoint its own judges to the lower court vacancies when they arise. And so far, the good news is, while the Biden administration is fairly circumspect when it comes to any of the legislative reform proposals we were talking about a minute ago, mm-hmm. Ron yeah. Klain, God love him, does appreciate the need to appoint judges and appoint them quickly. And so they are actually setting records that are at a faster clip nominating judges for the lower courts than any president since Richard Nixon. This is something that Ron Klain has not needed to be berated on. No pressure on. He's not just emphasizing the urgency of the issue when it comes to nominating people quickly, but he's also been changing the paradigm for the type of person that a Democratic president nominates to the court. And that's been another sort of big issue for us at Demand Justice, in addition to advocating for some of these structural changes. We've been all about trying to say, all right, corporate lawyers, big partners at big corporate law firms and former prosecutors, they've had their fun. They've had their, they've had like a- Well-represented. They're well-represented throughout the federal judiciary, all through the Clinton and Obama administration years. That was the default biography of the typical nominee that got put forward. And that's the same type of people that Republicans like to put forward. So as a result, you have less than like 3% of the federal bench that has worked at a civil rights firm or worked as a public defender. And so you have whole types of experiences in the law that are just utterly unrepresented on the federal bench. We've been trying to get that culture to change. And the Biden White House has largely adopted that mindset as well. And so there's been about 30 people nominated so far, the vast majority of them are public defenders, civil rights lawyers, labor lawyers that are going to change the complexion of the federal judiciary and give a real voice to the types of people that are having their cases heard in court that have been for too long not represented. I know we're running short on time, so I want to end with a final question sort of loops back to where we started and talking about the point of demand justice, which you created in part to pressure for court reform, but also to create Supreme Court voters, people who engage in this process because they are fired up about the Supreme Court. Do you feel we're making progress on that front among the Democratic voting base and activists? Slowly but surely, yes. <laughs> for Democrats who cherish institutions, who believe in government as a, as a noble thing, mm-hmm. the idea of politically organizing around the courts strikes us as a little bit uncouth and a little bit as something that should be outside the scope of politics. And so it's taking us some real political near-death experiences to figure out that if we don't get our act together and fight for the future direction of the courts, we stand to lose a lot. And so I do think things are going to get worse before they get better. We're going to start to experience the reality of some of the bad rulings from the 6-3 court. But I think over time, the real traumatizing experiences of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing combined with the consequences in the form of rulings that might come as soon as next term on cases like abortion and gun safety, 
That I think is going to shock your average democratic activist into realizing that this is an issue that we need to put at the center of a progressive agenda. Brian Fallon, Executive Director of Demand Justice. Thank you for joining us on Battleground. Joining me, I guess. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Brian Fallon for joining us on Battleground this week. And thank you to everyone who has emailed us or left us a voicemail. If there's someone you think we should have on the show or a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating interview on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Remember, every review you leave helps someone else find the show, so it really does mean a lot to us. David Wilson engineered the podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 